So Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave him to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah ill-treated Hagar, and so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel also said to her, you are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that is why the well was called Beer Lahadaroi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael, the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So today is Trinity Sunday. Um, this morning I was having fun with the fireworks group. I'm not very good at doing Sunday school, but I got away with it. There was only a few of them, and it was quite good fun. We were thinking about God the Father, um, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, we uh, did prayers on some flames, looking at God the Holy Spirit, asking for God to come in power on various situations. And I was amazed by some of the stuff that they are coming up with, uh, praying for people in refugee camps to know the power of God, um, praying for you guys to know the power of God. So lots of really exciting things there. And then we thought about what does God the Father look like? Uh, I've got a picture, we might put it on the Facebook page. They had a team, a collaborative effort, drawing God the Father, uh, which was very exciting. Um, some really nice little detail. He, had, he, he was running um, like the father in the prodigal son. He had uh, really nice big arms for hugging. We thought that was quite important. He was wearing welly boots, which was a nice detail, because apparently he's a farmer because he likes making stuff and animals and things. Um, and there's lots of really lovely details in this picture. 
so we'll, we'll find a way for you to see that. That was quite good fun. And then um, we had a game all planned to, to think about Jesus, our friend, um, but there weren't quite enough of us. It was going to be the one where you all sort of stand in a circle and you try and sit down and you hold each other up to demonstrate God's friendship. And, and what we decided is you need a whole church to make that work. If you've just got three kids, it's not quite enough. But we had a lot of fun doing that. And then the highlight, I think, um, was we, we attempted to dissect a Mars bar to demonstrate that the Trinity is really inseparable, the three persons of God, three in one. So we had a lot of fun. But what, I'm, what that meant was I missed um, John's sermon. Um, so those of you who were here this morning are, are one ahead of me. Um, but I, I heard a rumor and I spied the preparation. And I understand that John was speaking about how we need to have a whole and a complete understanding of who God is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I think he mentioned one of his favourite words, sozo, which won't be the first or the last time you hear him mention that word, which is the Greek word uh, for salvation that roughly translates as saved, healed, delivered, properly saved, completely out of danger. Um, and a whole and complete experience and understanding of God and how that enables us to be completely and wholly restored. So John was speaking this morning about how knowing God's complete love for us enables us to have total freedom. So this morning we thought about how we can have a whole and complete understanding of God. And that is something incredible and mind-blowing and probably not entirely achievable in this life. But we know that our relationship with God is not a one-way thing because this is the glorious thing about being in a relationship with a living God. It is two-sided. So on the one hand, there is the possibility that we can begin to grasp the complex nature of who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And on the other, there's this equally mesmerizing fact that we can also be known by God known not in a superficial way, but deeply and truly known by the one who created the universe. And this is the awesome truth that is at the heart of our gospel, that for the sake of this relationship, Jesus died. And so as I mentioned, when I was reading through Genesis recently, and I came across this story of Hagar, it really struck a chord um, with me. And the message that I have tonight, the sermon that I have, with apologies to Howard and Tim, it's not fancy. There's, there's really only one point. There's no alliteration. There's no PowerPoint slides. It's a fairly simple idea that I've just padded out to, to fill a bit of time. Because although I've known about the story for Hagar for a while, it's only recently that I read it as part of that complete narrative starting at Genesis 1 and, and coming across it in Genesis 16, and I was really impacted by the fact, and I think this is true, I've double-checked it, I might have missed it, but I think Hagar is the first person who gives a name to God. And we know that God's names are quite significant. It's not something that is lightly done. To, to give a name to God indicates something really significant in the relationship Often, as in the story that we heard with Hagar, it's combined with being in a particular place and naming the place after the experience that you've had with God. And so the place ends up getting a similar name. And that name 
that experience, that place being added to the collective revelation about the character of God. So enhancing not just one person's experience, but the whole community's experience and understanding about who God is. So for me to realise that the first time this happens, the first time that God is named by a human, is this account in Genesis 16. It's really impacted me. So I want us to get to know Hagar a little bit better. So we've had a bit about her, but let's dig a bit more deeply into her story. She was a slave woman. She was a slave. She was a woman. (laughs) In the hierarchy of God's people at the time, she was pretty low down, the pecking order. I've mentioned already the tricky stuff in Galatians 4 that I'm mostly glossing over this evening, but it's useful to notice that for many people Hagar's become symbolic of what it means to try and fulfill God's promises by human power rather than by relying on the spirit. It's certainly clear that Abraham felt God's displeasure for what occurred between him and Hagar. We know that Sarah reacted very strongly uh, against Hagar and we know that Hagar was banished into the wilderness However, what's missing when you read between the lines or even just the text that's there from the narrative is any evidence that God condemns Hagar or any evidence that the stuff that happens and the trouble that she faces shakes Hagar's faith in God. So let's have a look at this Hagar we meet in Genesis 16. So there's a moment that she flees from Sarah and it says, Sarah ill-treats her. This is verse 6. Sarah ill-treats her, so she fled from her. And she's found by an angel of the Lord in the desert near a spring. So here is Hagar. She is an Egyptian girl who has come to be a slave. In the Jewish version, in the Midrash, there's a, there's a story about how she came to be in this position. And uh, one account says that she was the daughter of Pharaoh which doesn't turn up in the Bible, but part of the Jewish tradition is that Hagar is the daughter of Pharaoh. So she potentially could have had a life full of riches and promise, but the Jewish tradition says that she was so amazed by the power that she saw at work of God in the life of Abraham and Sarah that she chose to leave uh, her life and become a slave to the people of God. So she potentially gives it all up to follow a dream of living with the people of God, whether that's True or not, who knows, but she was certainly an Egyptian who had become a slave. So she was was Sarah's maidservant, Sarah's personal slave, Sarah's property. So we can assume that she was very close to Abraham. And Abraham was the patriarch of this hugely powerful family. So I imagine that she was a very close witness to many of the miracles that had been worked by God. Hagar would have seen firsthand the power of the promise made to Abraham and Sarah and known all too well how that promise burned in their hearts. I think she would have been aware of the frustration that they had about being unable to conceive a child. She would have been aware that their patience was running out as their bodies aged. I imagine that giving your slave to your husband is a pretty big deal. I don't think it's a spur-of-the-moment thing. I think it's probably something that Sarah might have thought about for a while before suggesting it. And I wonder whether Hagar would have seen the seed of that idea germinate in Sarah's mind and come to fruition as the yearning for a child increased. 
We don't know whether Hagar complied willingly with this plan that was concocted by Sarah. We don't know that she feels blessed to be given the role of a second wife. Seems a bit bizarre to us, but such things were not uncommon and not necessarily without honour. She may well have felt the burden of shame at being given to this older man. Or maybe it offered her security and purpose. We don't know. But either way, the Hagar that we meet by the spring in the desert has definitely been abandoned. She's now alone. She's now without position or security. Her hopes and her dreams have been ripped to shreds. We assume this is her first pregnancy, so she's got that extra burden of fear and uncertainty to deal with on her own. And whatever her background, whether she was indeed an Egyptian princess or something more humble, it seems unlikely that she now would be welcome to return. She's unlikely to have the supplies needed even for her immediate survival, never mind the kind of resources you would need to prepare for a pregnancy or childbirth or motherhood. And so this Hagar is met by an angel of the Lord. And he says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Sounds simple enough on the surface, doesn't it? But I wonder, she's been banished, she's been mistreated, she's fled. Going back is not something that she would want to do. And even if she did, what are the chances of the mistress actually accepting her? I'm sure you find, like me, that sometimes the biblical narrative glosses over the bits that you really want to know more about. So I'm kind of interested in in how that whole discussion or conversation went. Instead, we've just got the, the bland, Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son. So clearly she does go back, clearly she is accepted, and clearly Abraham recognizes his son. But in between the angel speaking and Hagar going back, something else truly significant happens. And this is the scripture, this is the detail that scripture does record. And this is the detail that I think is important for us. In verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, El Roy. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So the name she gives God, El Roy, you are the God who sees me. We can only guess at Hagar's backstory, frame of mind, character, and resources. But God knew. He knew. He saw. And being seen by God was so significant and so sufficient, it allowed Hagar to return. And I think this story of Hagar touched my heart so much because I've been noticing this recently, that so many people in our society struggle to know who they are. They feel overlooked, abandoned, rejected. It might be a bit of a bold statement, but I think it's fair to say that identity is one of the real crises of our age. And it's a problem that's of concern across the generations. Issues of identity, body image and self-worth plague the younger generations. But loneliness and isolation and the fear of being forgotten impacts older people too. And in the middle... (laughs) A generation who just feel lost and exhausted, their own identities buried under duties of parent or carer or employee. And here the gospel speaks truth across the generations. We have a gospel that proclaims not only can you know God, but there is a God who knows you. 
But Hagar says more than that, because she calls God El Roy, the God who sees me. I think to be known is wonderful, but to be seen, to be noticed, it's beautiful. God says to Hagar, as he says to all of us, and to any who would come, you are no longer overlooked. Whether you chose this path or whether you've been led astray, whether on paper it looks like your life is conforming to God's plan or whether it seems like it's all fallen apart at the seams, whether you're a princess living in plenty or a slave abandoned in the desert, you are seen. You are not overlooked. You matter. You are still part of the master plan. You're worth sending an angel after. And God says to us even more, you are seen, you are worth sending my son for. Wherever you are, whether you feel like you're 100% in step with God's plan or all too painfully aware you've stepped right out of it, God sees. And I don't think it's a judgmental look. It's a look of love, like that father that the children drew on the flip chart this morning. It's the look of a father who would run with outstretched arms towards a prodigal returning home. And it's part of a relationship that will endure. And knowing that you've been seen by God can be the truth that carries you. This isn't the happy ending for Hagar. This isn't the last time that she gets banished by Sarah and Abraham. After Sarah gives birth to Isaac, the presence of Hagar and her son Ishmael become too much for her to bear and she sent again away sent away again you can read that in genesis 21 and again the angel of the lord comes to hagar and again speaks comfort to her and promises to provide for her and her son and we're told that god was with the boy ishmael as he grew up in the desert so here's the simple message for us you're seen by god you matter his eye is on you and it's love it's promise, it's protection. And the psalmist words came to me as I was preparing this. I want to share them with you. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. I have to confess, we've been watching a really awful television programme. I haven't mentioned to John, I'm going to confess this, sorry. We've watched a few episodes of Love in the Countryside. Has anybody else been watching that? It's great. It's very, very cheesy. It's, it's basically a dating program, but the setup is that these people are farmers and they're far too busy and they live in these remote rural locations and they're never going to meet anybody. So they get set up with people that fancy having love in the countryside. And there was this one quote, Heather, 28, who is an equine vet and far too busy to find love in, in her rural idyll. She says this, I want someone who will get to know all the different versions of me, the happy me, the sad me, the silly me, the professional me, the lonely me. It's a lot to ask, I suppose. I probably won't be able to find it.
<laughs> the heart breaks and the producers are cheering because it was a great moment. Um, but it's this sense that our human hearts are made for relationship. We yearn to be truly known. It's not too much to ask. This is exactly who our God is. So I would pray that each of us would know that God sees us and that that revelation would sustain us. But there's a secondary challenge too. Who are the others? Who are the overlooked? Where are the downcast, the lonely and the lost? What about the people all around us who struggle to know who they are? Let's open our eyes to see those who need us to introduce them to the Father so that they can know that they matter, that they know that they've been noticed and that they know that they've been seen. So, I had a quick chat with Anita this morning (laughs) and I, I told her a very rough outline of what I was planning on preaching on and, um, that there's been a song as a result is probably the, the easiest way to, to explain it. So um, I'm really, really grateful for Anita to bring this song that she's literally written this afternoon to us. And we're going to have this as part of a, a prayer of a response for what we've just heard. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask Anita to play for us. Let us pray. Oh God who sees us, we stand in awe of your glory. We feel tremendously small. Like Hagar, we have none of the resources, none of our own resources to rely on. And we're overwhelmed that you would notice us. But even so, you touch us with your burning presence and we are made clean and whole. So Christ our Saviour, lead us to do your will. Spirit our power, strengthen us for the work of the kingdom. And blessed Trinity, fill this place and these people with your presence. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory.